Hello, and welcome back to Tour Guide Tales, brought to you by Visit Scotland. I'm Grant Stott, and each week I'll speak to a different tour guide to hear the eclectic and often incredible rich history of Scotland through their knowledge, stories, and experiences. Today I'll be speaking to Maggie Smith from the Isle of Lewis. Six generations of Maggie's family have called the Outer Hebrides home, and having been a tour guide and cultural educator for 20 years, she has generations, in fact millennia, of history and stories at her fingertips. With moon gods, Neolithic history, clan battles and Gallic history, it's time for more Tour Guide Tales with Maggie Smith. Maggie, I've spoken to a number of uh, tour guides for this series, and it's interesting how people find themselves as a tour guide. You know, people can do it as, a, as an activity when they retire. People can do it, find themselves doing it as a, a way to earn money as a student. But this, for you, it really is a, a job you could say you were born to do. Uh, well, I was quite fortunate in that I had a very rural upbringing and uh, island life. I can certainly talk about forevermore. And I think that I, our history was so rich and there's just so much to share. Uh, the concern is that our lifestyle has changed so much since the 1970s. And um, I want to share as widely as possible in the hope that it will be embraced and that it will be renewed and uh, that it is going to be carried forward into the future. It's obviously something you care very passionately about. Your family goes back six generations, am I right? Yes. uh, Where I live here, I'm about uh, 10 miles from Stornoway, and I live in the Lochs district. And the piece of land that I live on is a croft, and it's a croft where six generations of my mother's family lived. And your family has been there ever since. And also you care very passionately about the the environment, the culture, as you say, and also the, the Gaelic language as well. Give me, a, give me an overview of how you've, because you've grown up using both English and Gaelic, is that correct? Yes, uh, Gaelic was the language of the community. And uh, when I went to school, I didn't have any English. Gaelic is very important to me. It's a very ancient language. It's one of the Indo-European languages. And it's interesting that we have all these Celtic cousins like the Welsh and the Breton and the Cornish. I'm a member of the Celtic Congress. And we meet regularly in each of these Celtic regions to catch up on the situation with the language, how the language is being promoted and preserved in each of these areas. We have a shared cultural heritage uh, going back into uh, the Gaelic language, which originally um, it's very, very close to the Gaelic of Northwest Ireland. When I go to Donegal, they can understand me and I can understand them. And uh, the Gaelic in the Isle of Man is also uh, very similar to Scottish Gaelic and Irish Gaelic. It's, it's fascinating because I, I grew up with, with Gaelic in, in high school. It first became made available as a, uh, as a language option. And that's when I first got to know and was introduced to, to the Gaelic language. But you're telling me there's so many different strands of it. And can you, can you all communicate together? Can, can Gaelic cross over the different, um, the different areas? No. Uh, the language has developed over thousands of years and the written form, you can see some root words that the six Celtic languages have in common. So there's the Scottish Gaelic, Irish Gaelic, the Gaelic from the Isle of Man, 
and Welsh, Breton and Cornish. So there's about 55,000 speakers of Gaelic in Scotland from a last census. Today, uh, there are Gaelic schools in the centres, the main towns in Scotland, Inverness, um, Glasgow and Edinburgh. The reason being that uh, the economics of the heartland, the heartland being the Outer Hebrides, that uh, the, the population shift has gone to the city and now there are Gaelic communities in these cities. So it's quite interesting to see the change of uh, where the language is stronger. So we have our own Gaelic TV channel, BBC Alape, and the children here are educated through Gaelic from the age of three to the age of eight. So how, what level of danger was there of, of the Gaelic language disappearing back in the 1980s, as you, as you touched on? Well, in the 1970s, as I mentioned, Gaelic was the language of the community. There was a huge change here around the 1980s. And the English language has really was promoted and was used. And it was the the language that a lot of the official bodies spoke in. And then we had an oil fabrication yard here where the a lot of the the local men they went into that industry and subsequently moved on to pastures new once that uh, industry ceased here. And uh, this led probably to the beginning of um, a lot of people coming from the south, uh, buying property on the island. So there's more and more English coming in. There's been a research project uh, which is called uh, the Gallic Crisis in the Vernacular Community, which which appeared just about a month ago. And uh, there is grave concern at the moment about the state of the language within the community in the Outer Hebrides. And the concern is that there are many learners throughout the world and there's also young people are being educated through Gaelic medium. And uh, it's the richness of community life and communication and the stories and the songs which is under threat that maybe um, there is going to be a, a paper for the arch- a language for the archives or a language which is just on paper only and not a community language, and uh, this is one of the one of the concerns at the moment. Um, it was always there, but the research project just has highlighted this, and we've got to move now. We've got to do something about it, or in ten years' time, it's not going to be a community language here in the Hebrides. Well, that sounds quite worrying because it seems that the the threat is is at its core, at its the very roots of the language. It it sure is. Yes, it is. And uh, unfortunately, there's so very there's so few people left living in the Hebrides that can make a living here all year round. And uh, it's a desirable place to live, of course, um, for uh, anybody coming from a city who would want to live a rural lifestyle. So we have a lot of retirees coming in and uh, the so that's that's the population shift in the Hebrides. Well, it's clearly something you're very passionate about, not just the language, but the, the history and the heritage of, of crofting, which your family's still a part of. And as ever, you sound very welcoming as well for people to come and, and visit. And, and this is where you come in with your role as as 
as, as a tour guide. How did that come about from, from someone who's, who's lived there and your family, you know, traces back generations? How did you then make that step into welcoming people and, and, and giving tours around, around the area? I particularly feel that we, as children, we were given the responsibility of visiting the elderly. And what an education that was. We listened to their stories and we uh, brought their pizza in to make sure they always had enough pizza in for the fire and brought their water in from the well. And I think at a very young age, you learned a social responsibility and that you had a place in the community. And every time there was a task when men gathered to work on the sheep or to cut the peats, the children had a role. And uh, I think we grew up with this, uh, that you always had to contribute to whatever was happening and, and put your shoulder up against it. And I think that's maybe why I stepped into the tour guiding role as well. It was just another way of passing on these stories, which you had sort of built upon layers of your own stories. And you were getting these backstories as well from the, uh, these other inhabitants. And, and the wonderful thing about what you offer is that you, you live, you live there, you live there. And you have a view of one of the, the highlights of the tour from, from your window. Well, that's right. Yes, um, I live in Achmoor and it's just south of Stornoway, bang in the centre of the island. And looking out my kitchen window, I can see Caliach That's the Sleeping Beauty, the range of hills known as the Sleeping Beauty, which resembles the outline of a woman uh, lying on her back. And uh, the standing stones circles in the area, there are many of them, 20 odd at the last count. Some of them are covered by peat, but it's thought that they align to this range of hills, which it's thought could have represented Mother Earth during the Neolithic. It's um, a range of hills that was mentioned by a Greek writer, a mention of a goddess who was visited by a moon god every 18 years. There has been a lot of research in the Neolithic here. We have, we have archaeoastronomists who have been studying the movement of the sun and the moon over the last 40 years. And uh, they have observed the moon moving along this range of hills uh, every 18.9 years. Uh, it's also in Gaelic, it's called Caelioch Namotoch, and it's one of the many Caelioch names in Scotland. The Caelioch Mountains are said to have represented a woman, and in the spring and the summer, uh, she is in good form, very rich in colour, and then when the winter winds blow in, she changes and she puffs and she puffs and she brings us uh, the hurricane winds and the the cold frost and it changes her appearance into the mountain, the hag of the mountains. I just love that, the, the sort of romance of it all, how you have a wonderful way of explaining why the Scottish weather is as, as harsh as it can be at times. Uh, you mentioned the, the standing stones there and these... These are fascinating uh, items that, that have come up a few times in previous episodes. And, and, and uh, Calnish, the most renowned in Scotland, would you say, one of the most famous set of standing stones there? What, what do you think it is that's so fascinating about these? And why are, 
Why are people so drawn to them? I think because people can um, let their imagination run riot. Everybody who goes there has got a, a different theory. And I, every time I go there, the light is different because we live here on right on the West Coast. We get a tremendous quality of light. And uh, you can look at the stone circle and see some amazing patterns within each one of the stones. The, in, the whole site itself is very interesting, the shape of it. Other things that are interesting are the, the notches, which have been discovered by the archaeologists, which are said to relate to lunar and solar alignments, aligning them with something on the horizon. So it's a, it, it brings in um, people who, are, who want to experience uh, the power of the stones. It's said they are on ley lines. So there, that's another angle on it. Uh, there are many, many, many different uh, theories and there's a space for everybody's theory because nobody really knows. Because they are sold, and as you mentioned, it's part of the Neolithic history of, of the area. And also what's fascinating about the Outer Hebrides is the landscape is pretty much unchanged. Yes, the landscape in the Hebrides is pretty much unchanged because we have had no major um, agriculture methods. There has been, the land is more or less undisturbed. Since the Neolithic 5,000 5, years ago, the peat has formed since then, and the peat has uh, preserved the Neolithic monuments under the peat. It's an archaeologist's paradise. Uh, if you're interested in archaeology, the Outer Hebrides is the place to come. Uh, we have uh, sites right from the Mesolithic right down to uh, the, the, the med medieval. And uh, the Neolithic period, the era is very, very interesting. Um, there's been, uh, just in the last four years, pottery which was found on a cranoch, sorry, around several cranochs, which were previously thought to be Iron Age. Explain what explain what a cranogig is. It's, these are these homes, effectively, that were built on stilts in the water, am I right? An interesting find uh, which related to the cranochs, which are on freshwater lochs. So a cranoch is a man-made island, and uh, it has been it's been surmised that the the way that the cranochs were built, that it was a house on stilts. And then that the loch was flooded round it, so this is a this is a fairly new um, theory, and uh, there's we wait to hear more because it's uh, here in the Hebrides we have we've achieved uh, the status of having the first place which has um, recorded Neolithic pottery. So the Neolithic pottery was discovered around several cranochs in a freshwater loch here in the Hebrides. It's been analysed and it has been dated to the Neolithic. Previously, the Cranachs were thought to be Iron Age. Uh, so that's shifted the benchmark quite a bit. Uh, we, have, um, we also have a unique herd of deer. The red deer are also thought to date back to the Neolithic. Uh, they are very unique. They don't have the same DNA as any of the deer on the other islands. 
or even around Great Britain anywhere. So there's a, they're being um, monitored and uh, there's a lot of research going on at the moment to try and find out just where these deer came from. Absolutely fascinating just how far back uh, you can go. And it's, it's wonderful that, that, as you mentioned, that the peat actually has preserved some of these amazing artefacts. As you mentioned the pottery there. Is there anything else that has been discovered that, that's really fascinated you, Maggie? I'm quite interested in the Neolithic period, but I'm also interested in the Viking period. And that's my own research at the moment, is looking at some of the Viking place names. The place names here, the major landscape features are from Old Norse. About 80% of the major landscape features are from Old Norse. We were under Norse rule uh, for about 500 years. And we have a lot of Old Norse uh, words in Gaelic relating to the use of the land and the processes and the same with the sea. There's a lot of Norse words which relate to fishing and to boats and the implements that are used. There's a lot of Old Norse words which relate to working the land and the implements that are used. They, they were using the Western Isles as a base for raiding, going to Ireland, and also going into um, the Faroes. There's similarity in uh, names, and one of the exciting things is the study into the Viking boat yards, which are which is happening at the moment uh, with Roanunan in Skye. And I suspect that we have similar um, facilities uh, ancient facilities here in the Hebrides. It's wonderful. I mean, your mind must be just full of all these facts and, and information about the, the history of the area that you grew up in. We, we touched on how you can look outside your window and you can see the Sleeping Beauty, the goddess, from, from your, your window. Um, there's also, I'm just looking at some of the other highlights of, of the tour, which we, which we talked about previously, Duncarloway, Broch. Uh, tell, us, tell us a little bit about this, because this, this is a special place uh, on the island, isn't it? Yes, the Brocha Dún Carloway is uh, the second best example of an Iron Age fort in Scotland. And uh, it faces the Atlantic and there's a big bay behind it where uh, there were several Broch sites. We know because of the Gaelic place names. Uh, they, all the Broch sites have associated stories of uh, giants. And uh, the one at Dún Carloway, was known as Dune Jarak, and Jarak was one of the the Irish uh, Fenian heroes. So the the Broch itself is um, an Iron Age fort, and it is of dry stone construction, and it stands to about thirty feet. The Broch is uh, an amazing piece of architecture. Um, just just it's perched on a hilltop. And it's built on a rock. Uh, the, it's a very prominent place in the landscape. And it looks out over the, the bay uh, and the Atlantic. So it is uh, one of the settings for the stories from the clan times. So going back to the 14th, 15th century, when the clan Macaulay, they lived on the west coast of Lewis. And they were constantly fighting the Morrisons who lived away up in the north. And in these days, cattle was currency. So they were forever raiding each other's cattle. 
The Brochadun Carloway features in one story where there had been a cattle raid by the Morrisons of Ness while the Clan Macaulay were out at the fishing. And the Clan Macaulay, they fished out at the fishing grounds out near St Kilda. When they returned from a, a lengthy trip, two or three days, they realised that their cattle had been stolen. And they knew the landscape well enough and they knew the route that would have been taken with the cattle. And they brought the boat in to the shore underneath the broch. And sure enough, they could hear the cattle lowing. The Macaulays crept up to find that the Morrisons were indeed feasting, having the best of steak on the Macaulay cattle. And uh, they, the Macaulays waited until they, the Morrisons had gone to rest. And the clan chief, Donald Cow Macuil, he scaled the dry stone walls on two dirks. He set fire to the thatch at the top of the broch. And the broch has only got one exit, a very, very low doorway. And as the roof burnt, the timbers came down on the Morrisons and they each headed for the exit. And as they came through the low doorway, one of the Macaulay men stood there with a club and being at their most vulnerable as they came through the door crouching, he managed to bump them all off on the back of the head. And that's how the Macaulays won the day and got their cattle back. That's fascinating. And what can you see of the Brock? You talk about it uh, in its location. What can you see of this day? At the Brock, the wall still, part of the wall still stands up to uh, 30 feet. And it's thought that there were several uh, layers, several floors in it with a wooden structure inside the dry stone wall. So the dry stone wall construction is... Um, Stands to 30 feet at one side, but the other side, the stonework has been removed and it was used to build the house, which is houses which are in the valley just below the broch. The low stone doorway is still there and I was privileged to be there one day, beginning of September, but the 4th of September. And the light at that time of year is pretty unique. It was my second time there that day and it was about half past four. And as I turned, gathering the last lot of visitors off the site, a sunbeam lit up the lintel above the doorway. And I saw this carving, huge carving, which has never, ever been recorded. I didn't have a camera, but I had a sketch pad. And uh, I asked the people that were on the site to tell me what they saw. And they saw the same as me. Within seconds, the sunbeam had disappeared and you would never ever know that that image, that sculpted piece of stone was there. And uh, it's a giant text message. It's full of symbols. We have, I have not been able to recapture that light just to get it right, to be able to take a photograph of the image. But that's the thing about being a tour guide. Eh, when you're out there and uh, just observing the landscape, you see the most amazing things. I would imagine so, uh, especially on a landscape as, as, as beautiful as, as Lewis. Uh, you talked about the wonderful story there between, with the fight between the Morrisons and the Macaulays uh, at the Brock there. There's more clan history uh, there for us to learn about as well. The McLeods versus the Mackenzies, tell us that story. 
Oh yes, um, the Clan MacLeod, they were the strongest clan here right up till uh, about 1610. And uh, the MacLeods, they lost favour with the, with the crown and the land was taken from them, given to the Mackenzies. So the Clan Mackenzie, they came from Kintail and uh, they were given control of the land. So the Clan Mackenzie chief, he ordered that all the MacLeods uh, that were related to the clan chief be put to death so that there would be no way that the MacLeods could claim the chiefdom of the islands again. So the last two MacLeods that were on the run were Donald and Torkil MacLeod and they were hiding in the home of a weaver in Crossbust. The weaver in Crossbust realised that he could make a fine bit of money for himself. He would be able to get some uh, silver from the chief of the Mackenzies. And uh, he shopped the two brothers, Donald and Torkil. The Mackenzies came and they took the two brothers by boat across the Minch to Bran Castle, which is outside Dingwall. And they were thrown into a pit and there were uh, iron shackles on their feet. They were going to be sent to death. They were to be hung on the cross in the morning. Donald MacLeod pleaded with one of the guards, as it's our last night on earth, we wondered if whether we could have a couple of things. Now, the guard had a bit of pity for them. And he said, now, what, what would you ask for? And Donald MacLeod said, I would ask for a keg of whiskey some butter and the head of three black-faced sheep. So the guard said, well, as it's your last night on earth, I can provide you with these things. When the keg of whiskey arrived, Donald took the bung out of the whiskey keg and he poured a dram for his brother. And he had a dram himself. And then he told the guards that they could help themselves to the whiskey in the keg. And of course, within a couple of hours, they were blind drunk and they fell asleep on the floor, out cold. So Donald took the sheep's heads and tore them apart and took the jawbone out of them. And he started trying to carve through trying to cut through the iron shackles on his feet. The bones were heating, the jaw bones, as they were heating up, he would put them in the butter to cool them down. Eventually, he was able to cut through the iron shackles, but he was afraid that his brother would not be saved and he was afraid the guards would wake up. So he took it's upon himself to make the decision that it was better that one of them was able to get away. So he bid his brother farewell and took to the hills. In the morning, Donald was hiding in the moorland heading south and his brother Torkel was put to death on the gallows. Donald went to the army and he gave another man's name to get into the army. And he was a good soldier. He served for seven years. 
and he was very highly thought of. He was given leave after seven years, and his officer said uh, that he should be back within two weeks. Donald said, well, my home is very, very far away, and uh, I will not be able to go there and return in the time you have given me, unless you give me a boat and six oarsmen. As he had served for such a long time and was very well thought of, they gave him a boat and six oarsmen and they set off. And they sailed up the coast of the Hebrides into the bay at Crossbust where the weaver lived. So Donald sent the men ashore to do a recce. And when they returned, they said, we just saw an old man and he was weaving a tweed on the loom. So Donald knew the weaver was still alive. When the night fell, they all went ashore and Donald was in his army uniform with a sword hanging in his belt. They went to the weaver's house. The weaver came to the door and Donald said, do you know me? He said, no. Donald said, do you remember the brothers Donald and Torquil that uh, you exchanged for a bag of silver? And the weaver said, oh, yes, I remember that very well. And he said, I am that Donald and I will show you the strength of my arm. And he took a sword and he took the weaver's head off with one swipe. And they all went back to the boat and sailed out the loch. So he got his revenge. It's wonderful. Drink played its part in that wonderful story. Uh, and also you mentioned uh, the weaver there. And uh, this brings us to the very famous Harris Tweed, which is still very much a huge part of your community now, um, which people buy all over the world. Uh, what makes it so special? Well, Harris Tweed was, um, it was a cottage industry and it was made out of necessity. Every family could make a tweed from the wool of their sheep and they dyed the wool different colours using the vegetation that was around them. Tweed was made, it was used to pay the rent sometimes when there was no money. It was used to barter with the merchants. You could buy a bowl of oatmeal or you could use it if you needed to buy a, a milking cow. So tweed, tweed making was the backbone of many families, including my own. All the family took part in making the tweed. So the children would be sent out with uh, little buckets or any bowls to gather whatever was in flour. So they used things like the, the wild iris. And uh, the wild iris, they could get three different colours out of, depending on whether they used the flower or the root or the leaf. Uh, they used the lichen of the rocks. And they used other vegetation and they used the peat ash as well for different colours. And it was whatever was to hand. All the tweeds were different. But they had to make sure that they had consistency within the length of tweed that they were making. So the children would bring back all the, the vegetation that was required 
And in these days, there were three generations in every family. So Granny was in charge of the dye pot and she would layer up the vegetation and the, and the wool and she would boil it up until she was happy with the colour. So everybody uh, contributed to the, the tub of uh, fixative for the, to make sure that the colour would stay in, in the wool. And uh, this was the, the ammonia pot. The wool was then carded to remove the vegetation, bits of vegetation that were in it, uh, and to ensure that all the fibres were heading in the same direction. After the carding, it was spun by the woman of the house, by, by the old lady in the house. And uh, then it was woven into a cloth on a loom, on a Harris Tweed loom. Originally, the looms were wooden looms. And then the ironwork, or the Hartish, Hartishly, came in. The Hartishly looms came in in the 1920s. And they were the, the looms that when we went to school, uh, we could hear them clickety-clack, 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 clickety-clack as we went through the village to school. So they were the, the Hattersley looms. They're still, still well used by the weavers today. So once the tweed was woven by the man of the house or the woman of the house, when the man of the house had to go away to uh, sea fishing or to work for the hydro or whatever, the woman of the house took over the loom. And once the tweed was woven, the final process that was done was the walking. And that's walking with a U. And that was done by the young women of the village where they would gather in an evening and they would wash the tweed and they would rub it on a board to raise the pile, to raise the wool pile and also to tighten the fibres to bring the fibres in together to ensure that the wool, to ensure that the tweed was of the regulation width, a 37 inches, which was required by the industry, which dealt with the merchants who were going to, who was going to barter with them for the tweed. So the tweed was to be washed and it was to be shrunk and the pile to be raised on it and it's, this would take about six hours. And uh, it was quite a task. It was laborious. But they used to tell stories and they used to sing to pass the time. And uh, we have a lot of Gaelic traditional songs which have been um, archived because of this custom of weaving the tweed and the singing. So the singing helped uh, because it kept, it kept them all to the same timing. And if they were all using the same timing as the tweed was passed round the table, round the six or the eight women, that gave even tension throughout the cloth. So it had a purpose. And the the songs that, that were sung were jolly songs or uh, spiritual songs. But they also made up songs as they went through the through the evening. If there was any little bit of scandal or if uh, some lassie fancied a, a nice young man who had just come back from the, from the sea, from sailing, um, they would get verses made for them. So there's a lot of teasing and a lot of fun in the, 
walking off the tweed. Such a wonderful history that you mentioned and how it was all interwoven with the, the language as well, the culture of the island. And you mentioned that it was it was currency, and, and am I right in saying there was no money on the islands till after World War One? That's right. Yeah, there was there was no there was no money here. No, I remember I, I interviewed a man who was. Um, he told me that when he left school, left school at fourteen, and he he was it was it was harvest time, and he was um, ploughing with a horse for several days. And he got two six pences. That's like two and a half pence today. Got two two six pences, and he walked. He walked about thirty miles um, to Stornoway, where he bought himself a cap. And these two six pences were the first. That was the first time he had ever seen money. And and to this day. You know, Harris Tweed is, is renowned the world over, as we talked about. You know, you, there, are, there are suits made, there are bags made, hats, wallets, and, and it's graced some of the, the, the biggest fashion houses in the world as well. Yes, indeed. Um, the, it was, um, well, Harris Tweed originally, uh, way back in the 1830s, it hit the market in, on the Strand in London, thanks to a lady called Lady Dunmore. And Lady Dunmore had an interest in an estate in Harris. And uh, she saw the quality of Harris Tweed. It was waterproof. It was warm. And uh, she realised that the gentry in London would really appreciate something that was so waterproof. And um, she took the, the tweed to London. And there's still a ladies' collection called the Lady Dunmore Collection, a ladies' collection. And after that, she organised, she she could see the potential, and she organised to send two sisters to Paisley, to the woollen mills, to learn how to make different kinds of tweed. Like, um, here there's a herringbone pattern is, is quite common. But she could see the potential for tartans and she sent these two sisters away to to the the mills in Paisley just to learn about pattern making, but still using the Harris Tweed unique, genuine island product. And uh, they became known as the Paisley Sisters. And uh, after that, Vivian Westwood, the designer, she um she used Harris Tweed in some of her fashion collections. In recent years, Nike. Nike trainers, they used Harris Tweed on some of their trainers. And nowadays, there's some, some very fine shoes made, made from Harris Tweed, which I quite fancy myself. It's still, it's still clearly a huge industry. And, and you mentioned when you welcome visitors, be they on the cruise ships or otherwise, that must be a big go-to for them. They must be desperate to get to, to the Harris Tweed. Harris Tweed has been marketed as a natural fibre throughout the world, probably for the last 15 years. And our local college, it's part of the University of the Highlands and Islands, and they do training courses. And it's quite heartening to see some of the younger generation are following the, the family tradition of weaving and making patterns and being creative with Harris Tweed. So we have um, a weaving course, which is managed by Harris Tweed Hebrides, who are, um, who are the ones who are promoting the tweed. 
And where there's an increase in orders, uh, they would run a training course. Now, Harris Tweed throughout the ages has always been full of peaks and troughs. And only in the last 15 years have weavers who are self-employed been guaranteed work right throughout the year. So now the the tweed industry is is managed better because there's a big promotion and then the orders come in and then they look and see whether they have enough weavers. And if not, uh, they will train some weavers. Now, weaving is um, it's an occupation which is very versatile. It's uh, flexible. Flexible is the word I'm looking for because it'll work with um, a lot of the people here are maybe small-scale crofters and fishermen. So the Harris Tweed weaving is a kind of go-to for the men, especially the men who are fishing, when they can't go to sea. They can work all night on the loom. Uh, they're self-employed. They don't have to clock in as long as they produce a tweed uh, for the mill agent within the time that's been specified. They can uh, build, they can work the rest of their life around around the weaving of the tweed. It's. Um, I was quite interested that I'm doing a research project on fisher fishing at the moment. I've been talking to about 20 fishermen and the number of them who told me that oh when the fishing when there was no fishing to be had when there was new legislation or the stocks moved um i had a loom and i i could weave to tide me over that period and even now uh, there's a couple of the men who are uh, fishing out of a harbor where the the breakwater has been compromised uh, they are they are still weaving because because if it's a certain wind, they well they can't they can't take the boat out, so they turn to the loom. Loom. So Harris Tweed has always been supplementing the income of the people on the islands here. It's uh, got its own trademark, the orb mark, and every piece of tweed, Harris Tweed that you buy, has got its own little uh, guarantee along with it that it's tweed made in the Hebrides, woven at the home of the weaver. So Harris Tweed is still a cottage industry. It's like it's got its very own hallmark, isn't it? Yes, it's got its own protected, um, designated. I'm not sure what you call it. It's like it's like it's like you can only you know call something champagne if it's created in a certain region of France. You if you if this is this doesn't come from from the Hebrides, doesn't come from from uh, from Lewis. It's not Harris Tweed. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And the same applies to Stornoway Black Puddings, of course. Of course. Now, let's let's briefly talk about the Stornoway Black Pudding because this is something that no Scottish breakfast is complete without, again, <laughs> I mean, is this something that you have always enjoyed throughout your life? It's it's something that people come to specifically buy on the island as well, I would imagine. Yes, that's right. Um, the the Black Pudding, Stornoway Black Puddings, um, is uh, probably on a lot of the, the menus in uh, throughout Britain. The puddings were made again out of necessity to whatever was with whatever was to hand, and uh, they used the the offal of the animals uh, for the the skins for the the puddings that they made with oatmeal and onions and blood puddings. So there, there's always a, a conscious um, recycling and 
reuse and making the most of things that were to hand in our culture. And it's something that we yearn to relearn now. So the Stornoway Black Pudding uh, is uh, is a product that a lot of the visitors want to buy and uh, they're very curious about it. And uh, it's one of our organic foods. At one stage, I saw it called Superfood. I'm not quite sure how that was, but anyway. Um, Maggie, the, the, the history, as we've talked about, is, is fascinating. Also, the Outer Hebrides' role in the World Wars as well, we, we need to touch on. And there's one particular tragedy, which, uh, which is still remembered to this day. Yes. Um, for the First and the Second World War, uh, the, the naval um, recruitment agencies were very aware of the island men having sea skills uh, because all travel was by sea and the young boys learned how to handle boats and uh, read the, the sea and read the sky from a very young age. So when the naval recruitment people came round, they would encourage the young lads to sign up. And uh, there's something called the Royal Naval Reserve, and they would give them uh, they would give them clothing. They would give them a, a jacket and a jumper and trousers. And I know that the clothing that it was it was not plentiful, so uh, that clothing was worn on the on the cross. They put it to good use. They didn't and. Um, Subsequently, when they were when they were called up, First World War, uh, they hurriedly had to um, get some smart clothing that they could, or or just some something new, something that was handmade, something that they could wear that was kind of presentable. So there was a huge number of island men who were recruited for both the second, before the First World War and the Second World War. During the First World War, the the war ended in November 1918 and a large number of island men were in the Navy and they were unable to leave their ships when the war ended, but they were able to get leave to come home for the new year. The new year was the great celebration here. Even in my young day, we didn't celebrate Christmas very much. New year was the big thing. And uh, when they were making their way home after the end of the war, for the new year, on leave, they were travelling from Kyle of Loch Alsh. That was our ferry crossing at that time. That was the, they called it the steam packet uh, they, that sailed from there. So there were so many of them arrived at Kyle of Loch Alsh that they wouldn't all fit on the boat. And uh, there was a yacht belonging to the Admiralty uh, based on the west of Scotland. And they were brought in to take the men of Lewis uh, to Stornoway. And it was on the December the 31st as uh, they sailed for Stornoway on a dark, stormy night. And the yacht, the Iolaid, foundered on the beasts of Hollam just outside Stornoway Harbour in the early hours of the new year. And 204 men lost their lives. There were 280 men aboard. One brave man, John F. MacLeod from Ness, he swam ashore with a rope. He realised he could hear the waves breaking on the shore and he realised that they weren't too far from shore. 
though it was dark. And he swam ashore with a rope. He tied one end to the mast of the ship. He ran, he swam ashore with the other end of the rope and he secured it on the shore. And the 70, over 70 men uh, clambered from the ship to the shore. And then the ship turned turtle, the mast broke, and the other 204 men were drowned. It's a dreadful time in Ireland history. So many of these men who had come through the First World War unscathed and they were drowned on the shore of their home island on their way home. And they're remembered every year? They're remembered. They're remembered on the War Memorial and the... Just recently, the centenary, there has been a new monument erected in Stornoway in the town centre. There's a monument out at Hollam. The boat went on the beasts of Hollam. There's a monument out at the shore at Hollam. And uh, there's a service there for the last number of years on New Year's Day. Well, there are just so many aspects to this wonderful part of Scotland, Maggie, that I think we're only really just sort of scratching the surface. But give me an idea of, of your impression of what people make when they arrive there. And, and, and in particular, I'm thinking of the beaches, when they see the beaches that are, that are there. How, how do people react? When people arrive, um, I think the first thing that gets them is the big skies and then the quality of the light and then the landscape and how far they can see and to go down to the beaches, the colour of the beaches, the colour of the sea, the variations of turquoise that they see in the in the water, as far as they as far as the eye can see, the, how quiet the beaches are. That there's a big um, long beach that they can walk on by themselves, and then the quality of the air, definitely. So many people talk about the fresh air and how you can just fill your lungs. And uh, what it what it smells like and what it tastes like. There's many aspects to it. Would you have any tips for people who are are planning to come and 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 visit? How long should they allow to get the most out of it? And uh, what would be the best plan to 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 get the full experience? Well, I think if you're going to visit the Hebrides, that um, getting transport here is the most important. Uh, we have flights coming in to Stornoway Airport. And also to Barra, and the we have three ferry ports of entry: Caledonian, McBrain, and um, it's very important to book very early to book your journey to Storm to to the Outer Hebrides uh, in good time. The Outer Hebrides has got many things. If you if you enjoy the great outdoors, walking, cycling, kayaking, there's the archaeology, as I mentioned, the cultural aspect, the beaches. Uh, the bird life, the sea mammals, and a, any of these, if you would probably need, I don't know, at least five or seven days. We get a lot of people coming through and saying, oh, we just never realised what was here. We need to come back. We didn't allow ourselves enough time. So if you're coming for anything to do with landscape photography is another big one as well. Yeah, uh, do allow yourself plenty time. Not one for the day trippers. Eh, we would welcome day trippers just as a taster session, just to dip your toe in the ocean and then 
immediately book your next holiday to come back. I like that. A nice little taster session. Uh, Maggie, we also, just to, as, as we finish, um, I also like to, to get the little nuggets that our tour guides have had with interactions with, that they've had with visitors to their attraction, to their, to their part of Scotland. Is there any story that resonates with you when, when someone came to visit Lewis or, and, uh, and something happened, the, the, the reaction to something that, that's really stuck with you? Well, I've, I've had people in tears a few times because it's just so beautiful. Possibly, possibly people who were um, who were Mackenzies. They came and they never realised that this was where the the Mackenzies um, came from, or the Seaforth Highlanders, a connection to the Seaforth Highlanders. Um, I can't really think of. There's been quite a few, but I'm, on on the spur of the moment, I can't think of what was. Will be just the best. I think. I think the 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 idea of someone being reduced to tears just by the view is 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 wonderful enough. Uh, Maggie, thanks so much for for spending the time with us on on tour guide tales. It's been a real treat. Something very different. You're a very unique tour guide. I think it's safe to say you've lived and breathed the Hebrides all your life through generations. And uh, thanks for sharing your your tales with us today. Thank you for inviting me on to tour guide tales. Well, it's certainly been a pleasure to hear more about these incredible islands from Maggie Smith. I was lucky enough to visit Barra many years ago and uh, I took that wonderful landing on the plane on the beach and it's an experience that will live with me forever. Listen next week when I'll be speaking to a different tour guide and if you haven't already, have a listen back to the other fascinating episodes. If you like the show, please join us next week and subscribe and leave a review wherever you're listening. I'm Grant Stott. You've been listening to another Tour Guide Tales Brought to you by Visit Scotland.